Would you take your Bible, open it to Mark chapter 3, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're also going to look at Hebrews 4. So find those two places, Mark 3 and Hebrews 4. This message is demands and appointments. I know we live in a crazy world with lots of demands on us and lots of things pulling and vying for our attention. And we're going to see Jesus in action in Mark chapter 3, and we're going to watch him dealing with multitudes of people and all these demands that were on him and the beauty of who he is. This uh, particular verse is one of my favorite Bible verses. This is Hebrews 4.15, and the writer says these words. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4.15. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, in light of this truth about him, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Father, as we come before your holy word this morning, we're grateful for the worship, grateful for this time to be together, grateful to be in the community of saints, and grateful to have a Bible that is alive and powerful and sharp and effective. And the key for us, Lord, is to open our ears and our hearts and to ask you to write your word on our hearts that we might not sin against you, Lord. Be that searchlight for us this morning. We want to be people who can say that we want to love you with all that we are, and we want to love people as we love ourselves. And that's going to take your mighty power. It's going to take that great high priest moving through us, Lord, giving us help because we are needy people. And so right now, whatever distractions, whatever weights, whatever demands, whatever pressures, Whatever anxieties we've brought into this place, may they dissipate in the beauty of your majesty, in the glory of your grace. Lord, we want to lay those down and surrender everything so our ears would be attuned to your spirit and we might respond to this uh, particular section of scripture in a way that brings you glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mark 3, verse 7. The demands and the appointments. Uh, Have you ever had a moment where You know, maybe you're on the road and you finally had a chance to relax in your car. You know, for me, that doesn't happen too often because I'm usually cutting everything really close. I try to time my arrivals within about a minute (laughs) when I'm supposed to be there. And it doesn't always work out. So sometimes I'm that person behind you and you've decided that today's a a relaxed day and you're just going to kind of take it slow in your car. And as soon as the light turns green, have you ever had this person behind you? They're like, and you're like, dude, relax. You know, you look back, they look possessed. They look like, you know, Goofy in that driving video that some of us saw when we were going to school. And Goofy's, you know, he's all casual. And then when he gets behind the wheel, he just turns into this monster. It's just terrible. This metamorphosis that happens. And then sometimes we're that, we're that person up in front. We've decided it's going to be, a, I've, I've allowed enough time. People who know me know that this is a miracle and really doesn't occur very often. And then that person's behind you and you're like, what is going on? Chill out, man. Well, Jesus had many days like that. He had many days when everything was coming at him from every direction conceivable. And that's what this is about. This message is about demands that come on our lives. It's about the Son of God in action. It's about ways that you can navigate through times of pressure. And our culture is a culture of pressure. 
It seems like there's constant demands on our lives. We have anxiety, we have stress, and we're, we're wondering, how do you deal with stuff like this? Well, this particular message is going to help us with that. Mark 3, verse 7. And Jesus withdrew. Anakoreo is the Greek word I'll explain in a moment. Mark 3, 7. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and also from Judea. Now, Jesus withdrawing, anakoreo, is a Greek word which means to escape from danger, at least in some uses of the word, it can mean that. And Jesus withdrawing follows the scene in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where the Pharisees, look at verse 6 with me, went out, immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians, those in league with the Herods who were in league with Rome against him, as to how they might destroy him. Progressively, it was getting more hostile and more dangerous for Jesus as he did his miracles, even among the area where he grew up. People were upset that his disciples weren't following the tradition of the elders and fasting twice a week. They were upset that when the paralytic was raised down from the roof and his friends cut the hole in the roof by love and lowered him down by faith, that Jesus said to the man, take courage, son, your sins are, remember, forgiven. And they said, who can forgive sin but God alone? And they believed that Jesus was blaspheming, but he wasn't because he was God in human flesh. But they believed he was blaspheming. And by the way, the law taught that the punishment for blasphemy was death. They believed that he should die. And then to make matters even worse, his disciples are going through the grain fields and they're being followed by the religious leaders and they're picking the heads of grain on the Sabbath day and the, they were upset and they're saying, tell your disciples not to do that. And Jesus you know, confronted them about their knowledge of scripture. Have you never read when David did this very thing? And they were more upset. And then it would appear that they planted a man in a synagogue with a withered hand because they knew Jesus would have compassion on him on the Sabbath day. And Jesus said to the man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he had to do it by faith. And the man with a withered hand represents the nation. I told you there's a deeper picture, a deeper symbolism. The nation was dried out. It was dead. It, it, it had no life. It was full of darkness. And the man was able to stretch out his hand. And Jesus restored that hand by faith. And Jesus got angry at them, and he was grieved at them. Mark 3 tells us he was grieved at their hardness of heart, but their response to all these beautiful and incredible miracles was to want to destroy him. And he knew it. He had the pressure of that reality hanging on his head. He was always living in the shadow of the cross. He knew he was going to die for the sins of the world, and he had all these people pulling at him vying for his attention, coming to him. And Jesus withdrew to the sea, verse 7, Mark 3, with his disciples. Now, many times the sea represents that which is unpredictable and dark and even tumultuous or dangerous. But for the sea, for these fishermen, it was also a place of escape. It was a place to get away. And Jesus got away. They, you know, they were largely fishermen and they, they moved off to this place where Jesus could get away from the the danger and the hostility that was moving his direction. And it tells us he, he withdrew to the sea, verse 7, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and also from Judea. If you're familiar with the map of Israel, Galilee's in the north, Judea's in the south, and from Jerusalem, look at verse 8, and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan, often called the Transjordan area, that's east of the Jordan, 
the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, and a great multitude heard of all that he was doing and came to him. So he was moving away from danger, and here's a map of Israel. For some reason, I was drawn to a kid's map. This is actually from a kid's <laughs> Bible thing. But anyway, you can see that if you look up to the top, you'll see Galilee in the north. The other side of the Jordan would be on the east side. You can see up in the upper left of the screen is Sidon and Tyre. So that's the northwest coastal cities on the Mediterranean Sea. The area of Jerusalem is down just above Judea, and people were coming from everywhere, north, south, east, and west. In fact, commentators agree that the crowds that Jesus was drawing at this time were tens of thousands of people. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, it was just, wasn't just 5,000, it was 5,000 men plus women and children. Jesus was ministering to thousands of people. When this place is full, we have about 300 people on average in here. Can you imagine trying to deal with and minister to 3,000 people? How about 6,000? How about 10,000? How would you prioritize who you would talk to? How would you figure out who had the greatest need? How would you know who should I spend the most time with? You had people vying for his attention and they were hearing of the miracles and some had experienced them firsthand. Some had watched him do these things. Some had heard from a distance. Can you imagine being a person in Judea or Jerusalem and you had to travel 100 miles to where he was from the south to the north? Can you imagine the end of that journey, especially if you did it on foot and did it with your family and maybe you had a terrible uh, thing going on in your life, maybe you were sick and you finally got to the place where Jesus was only to look at a sea of humanity all vying for his attention, all trying to just touch him or hear him preach. That had to be disheartening. And as Jesus looked on the masses, the masses become a picture of humanity, desperate, in need of hope and light. And Jesus came to an area that was described in Matthew 4 as being in a dark place under the darkness, and he came and showed his great light. People were attracted to him. Even people who were filled with unclean spirits in a weird way were drawn to him, and they would confess him, and they would fall down before him, perhaps even foaming at the mouth and with weird voices, and they would proclaim, he's the son of God. What do we have to do with you? And this was a scene that Jesus dealt with all the time. Do you know when you have a demanding day or a demanding week, if you're a mom and you feel like that you never get a break and they're always you know, pulling on you for the next thing and the next thing, or you work at a company and they've cut down your staff and you feel like you can't get your job done and you, you work hard you know, for 10 hours and the stack of works become bigger, or you're, you're sitting on the freeway for two hours wishing you can just get back to your family or you feel like you're on the last nerve that you've got as you've come to the end of the week and you're completely stressed out. Do you know you have a high priest who understands that? He had days and weeks and months where he never got a break. In fact, there's times in the Bible when it says he didn't even have time to eat. There were so many demands on his life. And yet he's modeling here how to love, how to love his father and how to love people. And he was showing his disciples the heart of God. He was showing us as we read the Bible and read these narratives what it's like to hang around Jesus Christ. Great multitudes, tens of thousands of people traveling long distances are coming to him. And he told his disciples, look at Mark 3 verse 9, that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude in order that they might not crowd him. 
The best way that I could describe what Jesus did here, and this is the only gospel writer that makes note of this, is that Jesus had a getaway boat with the engine running. Now, the, maybe an image that we can get in our heads, and this is not the best one, but this is what I think of it, is think of a movie star who goes to a place and is just being mobbed by hundreds and hundreds of people, and they've got a getaway car ready just in case they get overwhelmed by the mob. Well, Jesus told one of the apostles, hey, have a boat ready, because if this gets ugly, and remember, Jesus, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. He said, I need a getaway boat, boys. And maybe Peter was in the boat, you know, snarling at the people. He was a big fisherman anyway. Back off. Don't, don't, don't mess with my master, man. <laughs> and there it is. Some of you are thinking, this is a great idea, a getaway car. Just what I needed to hear this morning. Well, if you're doing anything illegal, please do not make that application. But sometimes we just feel like that's what we need. Like life just gets so heavy. In fact, the word crowd, the NIV says, because of the crowds, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. See the word crowd there? It's literally the, it could be translated crush. Uh, it's, the, it's a form of the Greek word flipsis, and it means to press, to squash, to hem in, and to feel like you're in a narrow place. And Jesus, I want you to just think with me for a moment. Try to put yourself just for a second. I know he's the son of God and everything. Try to put yourself in his sandals just for a moment. Put, put yourself in his sandals for an hour. What do you think his life was like? What do you think he felt like when he saw all these needy, desperate people just trying to get through to touch him? And imagine people who had traveled all these distances. They must have been desperate. I'm sure there was many cranky people who had not maybe eaten. You ever been at the dinner table with just with your family? Maybe eight or ten people and there's cranky people. You know, you've had the potatoes too long and people are snarling at you from the other side of the table. Well, take that and times it by about a thousand. Because Jesus had all these desperate people all around. And that's what was happening to him constantly. Pressed. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, John 16, But be of good cheer, I have what? Overcome the world. You're gonna have trouble in this world, and when you go to your high priest, and you go to that throne of grace, by the way, which is available to you as a Christian 24-7, you do not have a high priest who does not understand stress. You do not have a high priest who doesn't understand desperation and difficult circumstances. And in fact, the Bible says he wants you to come to his throne of grace that you might find help and mercy in your time of need. He's the dispenser of grace. Isn't that good news? Because we live in a crazy world. And we, sometimes we have weeks and even months where we can't even explain how we're operating, how we're getting by. And Jesus is an ever-present help in time of need. All these crowds were coming. He had the boat ready. And it says, verse 10, for he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. And the scene doesn't stop there. Among what we might call wild disorder, pushing forward to touch him, people jostling for position, it says, whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they would fall down before him and cry out saying, you are the son of God. 
you are the son of God. And there were demon-possessed people falling at his feet and making proclamation. He would quiet them down. And another desperate person would reach out, maybe leprous, and the people were trying to back away. And he would extend power of healing to them. And oh, it was an incredible scene. Imagine being one of the apostles who had been officially signed into the leadership. And you're like, whoa, this is heavy, man. This is ministry at its most extreme. And this is what Jesus lived week in and week out when he was on the planet. He was constantly reaching out to people who had need. Whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they would fall down before him and cry out saying, you are the son of God. Listen to this. This is from R. Kent Hughes. The unclean spirits were drawn by a strange fascination to see Jesus Even though they knew he was their conqueror and in their eyes the hated son of God, somehow terror and malice drove them to his presence. These evil spirits, malevolent, obscene, sinister, had wrought bodily injury on people, psychological trauma, and immense spiritual harm to their victims, and yet they were somehow strangely drawn to him. Ray Steadman tells of talking with a girl who had fallen into the practice of using a Ouija board He said it eventuated in her hearing voices that demanded that she write things down before she could sleep at night. Invariably, what she had to write was moral filth, obscenities, ugly, evil words. Sometimes she would have to write papers of them before the voices would cease and she could go to sleep. This is a mark of the kinds of spirits that these were, close quote. And they were coming, it's seemingly from every direction, thousands of people, all kinds of needs, and it was quite a scene. We got an email from a sweet sister in the fellowship, wonderful woman of God, and she wrote these words to our pastors this last week. She said, I wanted to take a moment and share with you what I witnessed last night during the youth group worship night. Now, when an email opens that way, usually uh, us pastors get ready for the next criticism that's coming our way. But this was not a note of criticism. Listen to it. This may be a little winded, she said, but I felt it necessary to send it to you. I know that most of you don't really know me or know my background. I will fill you in just a little about me and how I grew up because I feel it's relevant to this email. I was raised by what America calls a witch, a white witch. I grew up with no father and a mother who prayed and chanted to the powers of the universe or the elements. There was never any mention of God in our home ever. There were spirits in my house my entire life. Things moved around. Chairs were turned upside down. Lights went off and on. Psychics and psychic readings, tarot cards, etc. This was my daily normal. However, for me, I always knew something was wrong with this. When my mother would have chanting parties, that's what I called them, I would hide in my room, and I I knew that bad feelings were coming my way soon. As a child and young teenager, I never felt like I was part of anything at all or that I fit. I didn't fit in with my mom and her beliefs or my siblings. I had no one to talk to me about truth, which in turn led to a lot of heartache that is not necessary for this email. Anyway, this may be why I have such a heart for the youth and young adults. I don't know, but why I'm telling you this is because last night during worship, I was brought to tears. Not only was I brought to tears, but a piece of me, that little girl, was healed last night as well. And I need to say thank you. Pastor Brian, who's our youth pastor upstairs right now, you may or may not know the impact that you had last night with the youth, but I do, and I witnessed it. I watched the Lord move through a tiny room and touch kids in a mighty way. And in turn, they were reaching out to the person next to them. 
I stood in the back of the room and was able to witness these kids coming together all in the name of Jesus. I watched them pray together. I watched them cry. I watched them walk across a room, the room to someone who was sitting alone, and I watched them reach out a hand to that person and pray for them. I watched as Shane was able to keep worship active and alive in a way that urged these kids to keep encouraging and keep praising and keep loving. I stood there in tears as this was happening. These kids you are teaching are learning the love of the Lord at the most important age, and you are the vessel that God is using to do that. It was absolutely beautiful, and I am honored that I was able to witness it. I think at times, she ends the email by this, I think at times people forget to tell people when they witness something beautiful. I felt it necessary to let my church pastors know that what I witnessed last night was an amazing work that goes on upstairs, close quote. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? That's how the Lord is affecting people today. And sometimes we look around the church and we think, well, everybody probably came from a Christian background and knows nothing of the dark side of the spiritual world and things that people dabble in and mess with, but it's out there, folks. If you want to talk to someone who's dealt with this stuff before, or you want to interview a missionary who's been in countries where there's a lot of this dark stuff, you can talk to my son about what he saw in York, England, where there's magic shops all up and down the street, and there's a darkness that hovers over that city. Many broken and lost people. In fact, he tells a story, and you can believe it or not, where he said he was doing music on the street, and he talked to a man, and the moment he mentioned the name Jesus, the man's eyes changed colors. And he began to freak out and curse at the ministry team. This goes on. And this is what Jesus was facing in his ministry. And of course, he had power over the demons. But the Bible says in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe in shudder. The word for shudder in Greek is to bristle like a frightened cat. The demons even believe that God is one. And God is one is from the Hebrew Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Do you know that the demons are orthodox in their theology? And they do one better than a lot of people. They actually shudder in the presence of Almighty God. And the irony of this story is that the ones that know who Jesus is, so far in the Gospel of Mark, the ones that are proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God are the demons and not the people. The demons and not the religious leaders, they know who he is. And everybody else seems to be confused. Everybody else seems to be coming to him for what they can get out of it. I need a miracle. I need something from him. And this is true in the modern church as well. People show up, and sometimes they show up because they're in crisis, and look, you should do that, but you should stay when the crisis is over and serve him and tell other people where to find hope and life in Jesus Christ. And so here is Jesus, all these people coming, the demons proclaiming his sonship, and he earnestly, Mark 3.12, warned them not to make him known. You might ask the question, why did Jesus do this? Why did he try to shut down the demons where they were proclaiming something orthodox because the Lord does not need the devil's endorsement. His works already testified to who he was. The religious leaders were without excuse. They saw him doing miracles that could only be attributed to the Messiah. And yet they denied him and rejected him and even were planning his demise. Are you feeling pressure? 
Are you feeling like that person who's behind that car? You want to honk at everybody? You've been having, man, a bad couple of months or maybe even a bad year. What are the answers to life's demands? What does the Son of God want us to see in this text that we can take away? Well, this begins in verse 13. It says, And he, Jesus, Mark 3, 13, went up to the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. Application point number one, we need to get away. If you want to put something in parentheses, it's this. It's okay to get away. In fact, it's not just okay. It's required. You must have time when you get away, when you go up to the mountain, as it were, and you spend time with the Lord. We live in a world where we wake up to devices and we go to sleep to devices and we never, seemingly, at least a lot of people in our culture, never have a time just to be quiet and meditate on the things of God. Now, meditation in a biblical sense is not to stare at your navel for two hours and make hum noises. That's not biblical meditation. If you do that and you stare at your belly button for two hours, the only thing you're going to discover is that you have lint in your belly button. (laughs) Biblical meditation is to meditate on God, to meditate on a Bible passage. If somebody texted you a scripture that day, maybe just to let that scripture sink into your soul, it's FaceTime with God. It's about him. And Jesus went up to the mountain and he got away from the crowd and it's okay to get away. More than that, it's required to get away. We've got to have time where we refresh in the Lord. He did it and we've got to do it too. It's okay, number one, to get away. But Jesus didn't just go up to the mountain to get away from the crowd. Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. A insightful look at this scene is found in the next book to your right, Luke 6 a parallel treatment of the same story. So this is just Luke giving us the same scene. Luke 6, look at verse 11. You'll notice in verse 10 that Jesus has restored the hand of the man with the withered hand. It was restored, Luke 6, 11, but they themselves, the leaders, were filled with rage, Luke 6, 11, and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. And it was at that time, Luke 6, 12, that he went up, or he went off to the mountain to pray. And would you notice, he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Number one, it's okay, it's required to get away. Number two, when you get away, pray. Because when you pray, something happens to your heart. It's something that changes you. You do some FaceTime with God. And people who are new to Christianity, and even those who are seasoned Christians say, why should we spend time in prayer? The Bible says God already knows a thought before I think it. He knows a word before I speak it. He knows my needs before I say them. Why bother to pray? I think prayer is more for you than it is for God. Would you agree? I think God instructs us to pray because he knows you need to pray. He knows you need to turn your eyes away from all the demands of life and turn your eyes on God. He doesn't, by the way, need you to update him on current events. Do you ever pray with people? And it's like, they think that God needs to be updated. All right, Father, I don't know if you know what's happening with Johnny Smith over there, but let me just update you. Things are really going haywire in his life. His car broke down. Did you know that? His car broke down. No. You don't have to update God on current events. He already knows what's going on. He is running the universe. You need to pray for you. 
You pray to honor God, no doubt. It's a time of communion with God, no doubt. God uses our prayers as a means to his ends, no doubt. But you and I need to pray. It's not just about getting away. It's getting away to pray. And if the Son of God needed to do that with the crowds coming at him, and I think the timing of these gospels may imply that he went up to the mountain, got recharged, and came back down to the crowds. And I think he may have done this more than one time. I think this was a pattern in his life. Uh, Mark tells us later that he would often slip away to pray. He would, he would find uh, new energy, if you will, as he relied on the Holy Spirit in his humanity, which is somewhat of a mystery, but that's what he did. And he went up to the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. He went up to the mountain to pray. He prayed all night to the Father, maybe as much as 10 hours in prayer. And when day came, Luke 6, 13, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom also uh, he also named as apostles. See the word apostle there? It's apostolos in Greek. It means one with delegated authority. It means an ambassador. It means one sent out on a mission. The third application for those of us and all of us who deal with stress and demands is the mountain, get away to pray and get other people to share the load. Even the son of God knew that he needed other people to help him. Today we have a ministry fair. There's about 25 ministries that are gonna be represented out in that courtyard today. I would ask you at the end of this day, take a few moments and ask God what he's calling you to do. I hope that you are not just a spectator. I hope that if you're in that category right now, that that will change today and you'll sense a call from Almighty God as you go up to your own mountain and get the summons from God. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. I was reading a commentator, commentary this week by William Lane, and he said, going up to the mountain, there's a deeper picture. Going up to the mountain is where in these commentary-type words, is the locus of revelation. And what it connects us back is to a moment in Israel's history when another man went up to the mountain, and this is in Exodus 19, and his name was Moses. And fire and thunder and lightning were coming from Mount Sinai, and God was giving warnings, and Moses was summoned up to meet God. And do you remember what God gave Moses? He's up on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights. He's fasting, and God gave him the law, and he gave Moses, uh, you know, maybe even more insight about his calling. And there is Moses receiving the law, literally written with the finger of God, and he heads down the mountain. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience? You go up to a retreat, and you're, you're around the Bible and you're taking in nature and you're praying a little bit more and you're up at that retreat, that mountaintop experience and then you come down the hill and you want to share it with your friends and your loved ones and you come home and they're not on the same page as you. And you say, hey, I got revelation up on the mountain, baby. You guys, we all need to repent. You are going to throw the TV out and you start making sweeping changes and your family's lined up in the living room like, who are you? Well, Moses came down from the mountain. He had the law written with the finger of God. And God said these words, your people whom you led out of the <laughs> land of Egypt. Isn't that funny? He puts it on Moses. They have defiled themselves. And Moses looks and they're dancing around a golden calf, breaking every one of the commandments that he's holding in a very symbolic uh, manner. He threw the commandments down. And they broke because they had broken every one of them anyway. 
Moses came down, being summoned by God down to the reality of life. You see, you go up to the mountain to receive revelation, if you will. To, to, you don't, it's not new revelation, but you know what I'm saying. To, to have the face of God and time with God, and you're going to have to go back down the mountain and deal with the crowds and the demonized people and all that's going on. Are you with me? This is why we need to spend time with the Lord. Because he wants to use us to reach out to people to be a vessel of honor for the master. And the mountain becomes a very stunning picture of the call, the summons. If you go back to Mark 3.13, the NIV reads this way, Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. The growing need necessitated more men and women who would help in the work And Jesus chose 12, 12 apostles. They're going to be named in this context. And 12 should be a number that rings in your ears because 12 is the number of what? Tribes of Israel. And Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And the mountain and the choosing of the 12 is all connected to this idea of Jesus retracing the footsteps of fallen Israel and restoring the tribes and restoring fallen Israel and withered Israel back to God. Is that where you are today? Maybe you need to go up to the mountain. Maybe you need to revisit first things in your life, return to your first love. Well, Jesus goes up there, and if he needed to, how much more we? Whether it's a literal mountain or not, I think you all know what we're talking about. The work drained him. Power was going out from him. Luke says when he descended with the disciples, he came to a level place. This is Luke 6, 17 through 19. Just write it down. There was a great multitude of his disciples, a great throng of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits. Listen to this, Luke 6, 19. And all the multitude were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. It seemed like when he went up on the mountain, then he came down and power was just flowing out. Can you imagine one person after the other being delivered from leprosy, maybe crippled people, uh, walking again, leaping in the air, maybe demonized people, having demons go out of them. It was uh, quite a scene. And there is Jesus ministering. And he appointed the 12, look at Mark 3, 14, that they might be with him. Jesus needed people with him. And la- yesterday we did, uh, we started something with our men's ministry. It's a new kickoff. It's called Joshua Men, based upon Joshua 24, 15. And we had about 60 guys here, and it was awesome. We did a message, and then the guys broke into small groups, and a lot of discussion took place. And what we find with men today, and maybe this is not as true with women, is that men, and often Christian men, don't have close Christian friends. They don't have someone that they're accountable to. They don't have someone that they can talk to about their problems. There's even younger men who, who want to speak to older men, seasoned Christians, and find out how do you do this? How do you manage a family? How do you walk through these times and deal with the pressures of life? That's what we need. I would encourage you guys to get connected with that first Saturday of each month. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him, that they, they might learn from him and be shaped more into who he who he is, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. Turn to Matthew. That's the book just before Mark chapter 10. So Jesus calls the 12, representative symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. And here's 
Matthew 9, very familiar words, but I want to show you where it leads to. Matthew 9, look at verse 36, 35. 935, Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, Matthew 936. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech, pray the Lord of the harvest. The harvest belongs to the Lord, by the way, to send out workers into his harvest. Keep reading. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon. He heads every list of apostles in the Bible, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas who, by the way, he's last on every disciple list, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. It's an interesting thought. When the 12 apostles are listed in every place in scripture, Peter's always first, Judas is always last. The head of the list is the one that denied him. The end of the list is the one who betrayed him. Wow, that's his choice 12, by the way. <laughs> now, we know that Peter did some great things, and we, we don't want to put him down. He did some awesome things, but he did suffer from hoof and mouth disease. You all know that? He put his foot in his mouth quite often, spoke out of turn quite often. But these are the men that Jesus called, and keep on reading. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out. After instructing them, he said, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, verse 5. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Here's the 12 going to the 12, if you will. And as you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, do everything you've been watching me do at the bottom of the mountain now you're gonna do. Freely you've received, what's the Bible say? Freely give. You see, this hasn't just been about you being part of something big and exciting to report back to your mom in a letter. This hasn't just been about the experience of miracles. This has been about a baton that's going to be handed to you when I leave this planet. And I'm showing you the heart of God. Will you take the baton? Will you be one of my ambassadors? Will you go to the lost sheep in this world, energized by the power of heaven and say, there's a way there's a hope. There's a truth. You see, everything that's happening before us, folks, I think you can see the deeper picture. If you turn back to Mark, is a picture of humanity, broken, desperate, wondering if there's any answers. And here is God the Son on the planet showing us what ministry is about. And so he appointed the 12. He sent them out to preach he gave them authority to cast out the demons. And some of you are saying, why so much mention of demonic powers? Because there is a spiritual battle. battle. One writer said that uh, I read this week, he said, exorcism in this context is not just about individual spiritual liberation, although it is that. It is about setting the world of institutions and structures free also from injustice from cruelty, from neglect, from extortion, from corruption and greed, from the lesser gods of profit at all cost, and besetting down uh, the, uh, be and besting down the rest 
whatever it takes, close, uh, close quote. All that do- is dominated by the God of this age. Every place where we see injustice, every place where we see neglect, every place where the God of this age has put a blanket of darkness on a family or a region or an institution, Christians are supposed to go out, please hear this well, with the light of the gospel and change their world. You're a city set on the hill. That's what you're supposed to do, to lift the darkness where it is. And some people say, well, that's too big for me, Pastor Michael, but you can do it where you live and where you work. You don't have to change the world. Nobody's going to change the whole world, but together we can. Do you believe that? Do you believe that we can remove the burdens of people by the power of the gospel? Do you believe if you're true to your calling and your ministry, this world can change for the better? And the God of this age can be moved back. Jesus said the gates of Hades will what? Not prevail against my church. Do you believe that? Gates are, by the way, for defensive purposes, which implies that the church will be going out into the world and confronting a world of darkness wherever it exists, in companies, in neighborhoods, and saying we're going to bring the light here. That's the mission of the church. And that's what Jesus is doing right here. Now, as they observe the confidence of Peter and John, Acts 4.13, and understand that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. You see, when you do FaceTime with Jesus, something changes about you. I remember a story that Dr. Martin told. He said, they were, I think, in Russia somewhere is the story, and all the bigwigs were there. And there was a man, he was an actor, and he acted in dramas and plays, and he was playing a role. And the woman who was the co-star in the play was a Jehovah's Witness. And he had, he had been sharing with her quite often. He was trying to win her to Christ. And they had a scene in the play, in the drama, where he would sing a, a love song to her, and he had been praying for her, and he had been witnessing to her, but she was tough to reach. And in the song, they're kind of face to face, and he's singing this love song to her, and he sees this frightened look on her face in the middle of the play. And all of a sudden, she gets kind of freaked out, and they move behind the stage, and she said, what happened to you tonight? And he said, what do you mean? She said, that wasn't you tonight. I was looking at somebody else tonight. Somebody else was singing to me tonight. And he goes, you're right. That wasn't me. That was Jesus. And that woman gave her life to Christ. That's who you and I can be if we go up on the mountain and decide we're going to serve him. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. By the way, imperfect people qualify, just so you know. This whole list is imperfect people. So you qualify and I qualify. That's good news right there, right? Imperfect people. Peter was one of them. He heads the list. He appointed the 12. Uh, Interestingly enough, as I mentioned, it always begins with Peter, always ends with uh, Judas. And Peter's name, the Aramaic of Cephas, is stone or rock. Was Peter a rock at this moment? No, no. But the name was given to him for what he would be. Surnames were often given in the Old Testament that fit with what a person's mission would be. In fact, in the Old Testament, Joshua's name is Hosea. His name means salvation. And Moses changes his name to Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. A slight change But what it means is that a mission was being given to Joshua. It would be bigger than him. He had big sandals to fill, and his name was changed to show him where the power would come from. 
and James, verse 17, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, to them, to, Jesus gave the name Rock to Peter, and to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. <laughs> it's great. He'd say, hey, Rock, come over here. We need to talk a little bit. Hey, sons of thunder, come over here. And they would say, Lord, can we burn a village now? Please. These were, they were nicknamed apparently because they liked to go into certain villages, and when the village was not open to the gospel, they would look at Jesus and say, let's just send fire from heaven and burn this village. What do you think, Lord? Just once, please. And Jesus said, you guys are sons of thunder, man. I didn't come to the earth to destroy men's lives. I came to save them, but they got a nickname. And do you know that one of the brothers, John, became known as the apostle of love? He totally changed. Anybody who hung around Jesus for three, three and a half years, they changed. John became this great pillar of love. Peter became the spokesman for the gospel in the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts. James and John, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, his name in Aramaic means the twin. James, the son of Alphaeus, he was a doubter and Thomas was changed. And then you have Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. Some variations on the names from gospel to gospel because they often had more than one name. You'll notice that Matthew is listed there. He's called Levi earlier in Mark, but here he is known as Matthew. And then Judas Iscariot also who, who also betrayed him. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you that it's alive and powerful. Thank you that it deals with people just like us. If we were to put ourselves in this story this afternoon, and we should, where might we be? Would we be one of those desperate faces that traveled all that way for a miracle? Would we be one of the people who have been harassed by spirits? Would we be one of the apostles wondering where this is going to lead next? Could we put ourselves just for a moment in the sandals of the Son of God and, and wonder what it must have been like for him? But Lord, can we put ourselves right now where we really are? We are people of God, summoned to the master, called for a greater purpose. Would you stir your church? Would you stir my soul to be about your business, Father? To heed the call that you've given, to go to the top of the mountain and hear from you and go down into this needy world and be a change agent for our God. We just want to say we love you. And as we get ready to take communion now, may you bless the precious people that have gathered on this Sunday. May you meet them at your table. May you heal their emotional needs, their spiritual needs, their physical needs. And if you're a non-Christian here this morning with your head and heart bowed, run to Jesus Christ and be saved. It's something like this. If it's you with your head and heart bowed, just say, Lord Jesus, save me. Pray it out loud if it's you. I come to you right now in faith. I believe you died on the cross for my sin and rose to defeat death. I repent of my sin. Please forgive me, Lord. Please lift the burdens from my life. Set me free. Make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. Lord, for those who are crying out, maybe even those who are rededicating their life, may you bless them. May you strengthen them. May you meet them here. And may you take each and every need in this congregation and extend your hand to meet it. Bring times of refreshing through your Holy Spirit as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.